This is Intersection, I'm Matthew Petty. More than 900 manatees have died in Florida this year, and over half of them in the Indian River Lagoon. WMFE's Amy Green has been reporting on the plight of the manatees. You can find her latest story over on our website, wmfe.org. Amy Green joins us now. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Just how bad is the situation for those manatees, and how does it compare to previous years? Matt, this is a crisis situation for these manatees. As you mentioned, 930-some manatees have died this year in Florida. This is an unprecedented, a record-setting die-off for these manatees. And, you know, just to give you a sense of, you know, the scope here, it it represents about 10% of the manatee population um, in the state of Florida. The deaths are really concentrated in the Indian River Lagoon, Mm -hmm. uh, which is in large part in our listener area. And environmental groups say on Florida's east coast, as much as 20% of the manatee population has been wiped out. Is there a point of no return that manatees could approach? Like, is there a tipping point at which point environmentalists or, or people who are studying this might say, this is it, this population can't survive this kind of die off? You know, certainly that's an issue that the government agencies and the environmental groups are looking into. The U.S. Uh, Fish and Wildlife Service is engaged in a five-year review mm-hmm. of the species status, and one of the things they're looking at is whether the manatee should be reclassified as endangered. The manatee was downlisted to threatened in mm-hmm. 2017, but certainly there are worries that at this rate, the manatee could certainly go back to an endangered status again, and potentially this status could be even worse. I want to ask you more about that in a moment, but uh, you've been reporting for years, Amy Green, on the problems with the water quality in the Indian River Lagoon. Is this just a continuation or a, a factor of that issue with water quality in the lagoon? Yes, absolutely. The Indian River Lagoon has suffered just ongoing water quality problems for many years. And as a result of that, there has been widespread loss of seagrass, which is the manatee's preferred food. And in some parts of the lagoon, in some parts of the northern lagoon, which is in our listener area, as much as 50 percent, and in other parts, as much as 90 percent of the seagrass has been lost. And so for manatees, manatees are sensitive to cold water. They, they are stressed in cold water. And so when a cold snap occurs for manatees, it leaves them with a crucial choice. They can either stay where they are and potentially freeze, or they could forage elsewhere and starve. And so that's why we're seeing a lot of the manatees in the Indian River Lagoon. And that's why there's a lot of worries with this die-off this year, because these water quality problems and these seagrass losses in the Indian River Lagoon will not be resolved anytime soon. Mm-hmm. So... When the manatee mortality started to be reported earlier on, like months ago, there was some kind of question marks over it, right? There was, it was a bit of a mystery. People couldn't quite figure out why these manatees were dying off, but it sounds like there is a culprit now, and it's the, the death of the seagrass, and essentially those manatees are starving. Does that sort of sum up what's going on here? That's exactly right. So um, the die-off kind of began in December of 2020. There were a series of cold snaps. And as one uh, source who I talked to for the Florida Fish and Wildlife Conservation Commission, he's part of a three-person team in the Indian River Lagoon rescuing manatees. His name mm-hmm. is Bill Greer. And as he described it, after this series of, of, of cold snaps, the team began receiving calls almost every day, pretty much every day, about dead manatees. So there's like a manatee hotline where you can call and report if you see one dead? 
well, you can call the Florida Fish and Wildlife Conservation Commission. Mm -hmm. And so as the mortality event continued, the people who work on that came to understand that it was related to these cold snaps and loss of seagrass and loss of food for them. So who or what is to blame for the water quality and therefore the degradation of the seagrass? Is it human interference somehow? Is it pollution? Is it industrial runoff? Like what is going on that is causing the water to degrade to the point where the seagrass can't sustain itself? The short answer to that, Matt, is all of us. Um, The lagoon has suffered ongoing water quality problems for several years. And specifically what's happening are harmful algae blooms. And these are algae blooms that are nourished by nutrient pollution, for instance, runoff from fertilizers and septic tanks. And all of this flows into the Indian River Lagoon and nourishes these harmful algae blooms. These harmful algae blooms cloud the historically crystal clear water of the Indian River Lagoon, preventing sunlight from reaching the seagrass undulating beneath the surface. And as the seagrass dies, that dead seagrass further produces nutrients, Mm -hmm. which continue to feed harmful algae blooms. And over time, it can cause a spiraling effect here. You're saying that the Indian River Lagoon used to be crystal clear. When was that? Because I've I've been living here 10 years. I don't think I've ever seen it uh, that quality. I've heard locals um, describe the Indian River Lagoon as like an aquarium and you mm. could you know you could just look into the lagoon and see you know the fish swimming around in there and the manatees and all of the other marine life but in within the past 10 to 15 years there's been a lot of problems with these harmful algae blooms which have caused a lot of problems in the Indian River Lagoon. Right, because some of the reporting you've done over uh, the years at WMFE has involved the the fish die-offs, the very headline-grabbing big events, catastrophic events that people really have to pay attention to, right? And I guess this is just the latest in a chain of events pertaining to the health of that lagoon. If you're just joining us, I'm talking with Amy Green, WMFE's environmental reporter, talking about the plight of the manatees, the record die-off of manatees this year. So your reporting, Amy, takes you into the effort to save some of those stricken creatures, and you talk to people at SeaWorld who are involved in that rescue effort. How many have they saved so far this year? It seems like quite a high number. Yeah, I would say fewer than 100 manatees have been rescued, and the vast majority of those manatees have been taken to SeaWorld to be rehabilitated. I drove down to SeaWorld, and I saw... One manatee, she was called number 37 because Mm -hmm. she was the 37th manatee to be rescued this year from Florida waters. And um, she was in just a horrific state. If you've never seen a manatee in the wild, they're extremely charismatic animals. They're very curious. They'll swim right up to you, especially if you have something shiny like a camera, because they're very curious about things like that. They are relatives of elephants. You know, they're very plump, chunky animals. And this manatee was just heartbreakingly slender. She was in a medical pool. Her chin was propped up on a pipe to make the effort of lifting her head to breathe easier. And it was it was just a heartbreaking scene with her. Nonetheless, they are hard at work trying to save the manatees. Like what's involved in nursing them back to full strength and you know how much effort goes into that? 
that's another one of the concerns here, Matt, is that the rehabilitation um, or the recovery from starvation for manatees is much longer than from other threats like red tide. You know, a manatee that's been exposed to red tide can spend a few weeks in a rehabilitation center like SeaWorld and then re- be released back mm-hmm. into the wild. For starvation, the recovery is six to eight months. And so one of the concerns is that should another mortality event happen like this this coming winter, they're worried about running out of space at mm. rehabilitation centers. And so one of the things they're working on is moving manatees that are in better condition to other locations so that they can free up space in SeaWorld's medical pools for more fragile animals like number 37. You did get to see, you know, there was, a, I guess, a, a moment of levity in amongst the, the tragedy of this situation, right, in, in your experience reporting on those manatees at SeaWorld. I wonder if you could just describe what you saw there with that juvenile manatee. Right. And so kind of on a different hopeful note, um, I also saw two baby calves um, who are being rehabilitated at SeaWorld. And they were among about 13 calves that have been rescued this year from Florida waters. And this is one of the cutest things I've ever seen, Matt. These were manatees who were in better condition than number 37. They were they were chunky baby manatees and they were being fed by bottles. And so it's encouraging to see these manatees make a comeback like this. It's also concerning because, again, these manatees face a very long recovery. These baby manatees will be at SeaWorld for a few years as they recover from the loss of their mothers, presumably during this mortality event. Back to the listing of manatees or the downlisting of manatees from endangered to threatened. That happened not long ago, which suggests that this is kind of a turnaround for these animals, right? They must have been doing well enough at one point that U.S. Fish and Wildlife decided uh, manatees can now kind of go up a level in terms of their status from endangered to threatened. But what does that actually mean in practical terms when an animal gets taken up a rung, so to speak? What does that mean for people monitoring their health, for people looking after them, for the manatees themselves? So the manatee was downlisted in 2017 from endangered to threatened. And at the time, this was extremely controversial. It was met with widespread opposition. The downlisting, in fact, was opposed by all four scientific experts who peer-reviewed the U.S. Fish and Wildlife's proposal Mm -hmm. for the downlisting. And among the concerns the scientific experts raised were concerns about habitat problems, including in the Indian River Lagoon and, and these catastrophic seagrass losses, which are such crucial manatee habitat in Florida. The U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service downlisted the manatee after a petition that was filed by a nonprofit organization dedicated to limited government and individual rights. It was an organization representing waterfront property owners in Crystal River, which is another manatee haven on Florida's west coast. So despite this widespread opposition and these widespread concerns about the manatee's condition, you know, continuing to be in a fragile state. There were also significant die-offs in 2010 and 2013. In 2013, uh, some 800 manatees died. That was the previous record. Mm -hmm. The U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service moved ahead with this downlisting and said at the time that protections for the manatee would not change 
significantly, although environmental groups point out that by downlisting the animal, it sends a message to the public and to policymakers. Um, lawmakers, for example, might not approve more habitat measures mm-hmm. because they believe the manatee is doing okay. And the environmental groups say that the data clearly shows the manatees still face a lot of problems. Right. And the data, in this case, being the, the number of manatees that are turning up dead. I wonder, though, I mean, if an animal is endangered like the manatee, does that mean there are potentially more resources that can be poured into trying to save it or at least protect its habitat? That's right. And that's the point the environmental groups say, which is that an animal that is the subject of the highest level of protections, you know, as policymakers, just for example, consider habitat measures or conservation measures, they might be more interested or more willing in approving those measures for an animal that's endangered versus threatened. Now, in the course of your reporting, it sounds like there are some legislative efforts, there are some other efforts going towards potentially moving the manatee back onto the endangered list. Tell me about what's going on there. That's right. There is a measure in Congress right now aimed at restoring the manatee's endangered status. And at the same time, this mortality event that we have seen this year has prompted an urgent federal and state effort to brace for potentially more deaths this coming winter. The state budget included some money for the manatees this past spring. Um, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service designated the die-off as an unusual mortality event, which prompts an investigation into why the manatees are dying and how mm-hmm. to prevent future deaths. Meanwhile, agencies like the Florida Fish and Wildlife Conservation Commission, Bill Greer, whose job is to rescue manatees in the Indian River Lagoon, is in touch with other agencies and other partners to talk about how to maximize resources should another die-off happen. But again, the environmental groups make the point that, you know, this this is an urgent issue. This is an urgent concern. So what does the future look like for the manatees from uh, what you've seen and and heard and the people you've talked to, Amy? Well, I talked with one scientific expert whose research was in large part the basis of the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service's decision to downlist. And he made the point that the manatees could bounce right back because there will be less competition for food and resources. Again, others are very concerned that these seagrass losses will not be remedied very soon, and there could be a lot more deaths this coming winter. Is there anything that listeners might be able to do individually to help? The best thing listeners can do is to limit nutrient pollution. You know, pay attention to the fertilizer you're using on your yard. If you have a septic system, have it serviced and make sure it's functioning properly. Just be a responsible Floridian, you know, living uh, within our environment. There's also a lot of good organizations that are doing a lot of good work like the Save the Manatee Club that listeners could support too. The problems in the Indian River Lagoon are longstanding and far-reaching. There's a lot going going on to try to help those problems. There are groups of citizens who get together and put together oyster mats because oysters are natural water filters. Oysters filter the nutrient pollution out of the water. That's Mm -hmm. another thing people can do to help out. And they can help with preventing erosion too, right? Yep. And so there are lots of ways people can contribute. WMFE's Amy Green, our environmental reporter, has been reporting on the plight of the manatees. You can find her latest story 
on the Manatees over on our website, wmfe.org. Amy, thanks so much for joining us and uh, sharing some insights into your reporting. Appreciate it. Thanks for the opportunity to talk about it. Still to come. We're just scratching the surface in our effort to evolve from being just a service-based organization to now being focused on outcomes to help get people out of homelessness, or what I, as I like to say, get them off this carousel of chaos, because it's a horrible, horrible place for anybody to be. As homeless advocates brace for a surge in evictions, we'll visit the Christian Service Centre's Orlando campus, where nonprofits are working to get people off the streets and out of poverty. Intersections back in a minute. This is Intersection, I'm Matthew Petty. The Christian Service Centre's headquarters in downtown Orlando is an unassuming beige building next to the Exploria Soccer Stadium. On a muggy weekday morning, it's bustling with activity, with dozens of people sitting at picnic benches, lining up to get their laundry done or waiting to browse racks of clothing at the thrift store. The Service Centre has been here for more than 30 years, but Executive Director Eric Gray says in the last few years a transformation has taken place. Right now we're standing in the courtyard um, amongst the four buildings uh, that make up the two-acre Christian Service Center campus. And we have um, probably on campus right now about 200, 250 people amongst the four buildings and in the courtyard. And they are here to get everything from basic to advanced human services, to talk to case managers about housing, about jobs, and to talk to people about uh, mental health care. And so our, we, while we provide a lot of individual services like showers and laundry and food and clothing, the goal here is to help be, move people into housing, into hiring, into jobs, and into health care. That's our overall goal. So we, we use the services as an effort to build a relationship with people so that we can ultimately get them off this carousel of chaos and, and really into a stable place in their lives. And you've got some picnic benches, you've got some uh, tents set up. Was, was that here before? No, so uh, just last year this would have been a parking lot, but and when, we, when we opened up the campus, it was in an effort to get people off the streets to try to reduce panhandling downtown, to reduce the loitering downtown, give people a safe place to be. It took a lot of experimentation, but we've really found a way to welcome people to the campus and uh, give them a safe, a safe space. But this is not about just people coming here to hang out, it's about them actively getting services. Why do you see people in line in multiple places to, to work with clothing, showers, haircuts, or laundry services. The folks that are hanging out here are, um, are, are, gonna, are waiting for their name to be called so they can get a shower. They're waiting for lunch at noontime or dinner at 5.30, or they're waiting for their case management appointment to talk to somebody about housing or to talk to somebody about a job. So we're, we're here in a very active sense trying to make sure that people are getting the long-term help they need but the attraction is getting some short-term assistance like food and, and a shower you know, during the day in order to get them here in the first place. Inside one of the buildings is a hall that serves as a place to get out of the heat and take a rest and where people can get lunch. Lawrence Graham cooks for about 200 people each day using ingredients donated by local supermarkets. That's something that is really iffy, but that there, I, I just go with whatever ingredients I have. Say, for instance, if I have beans, I, I, I mix the beans up with the ground beef and make a chili, uh, you know. What's on the menu today? Uh, nachos. Okay. Nachos, and which we had we had absolutely no meat out at all. Uh-huh. So I had to sacrifice some beef somewhere. I did, it wasn't a sacrificial thing, but I, went in, I did my beef. I had my beef out, and so I did the beef. And I put it at, uh, I made a chili. 
And is the, are the numbers kind of pretty steady? Is it it's usually yeah. around the same number of diners per day? Yes, we 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 roughly at two hundred now. Uh, around winter time, it jumps up to about two fifteen to two fifty. So. And how many how many sous chefs do you have? No, it's just me. It's just wow. me. Yeah. Sounds like a workout. Well, it's a it's a pleasure. That's all it is. It's a pleasure, really. And, and how long have you been doing it for? Here, I've been doing this for two years here. So, I've been actually employed with the company for two years, but I've been doing it for a year and a half prior to that here. They, I told Eric he got to pry me away from here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Seriously, I love what I do. You know, I love the interaction with the clients and everything. As well as meals, laundry and clothes, people can get a haircut, connect with healthcare providers and get help finding a job. Seven non-profits call the centre home and soon there will be an eighth. Eric Gray says it's part of a plan to create Orlando's first comprehensive day services centre for adults experiencing homelessness. The notion of building best practices to help combat homelessness in the United States really didn't begin until about 2002. And so the country as a whole has been copying other communities now for about 20 years, just under 20 years. Orlando got really serious about this under Mayor Dyer and the city council's leadership back in 2013. And, um, and then the, the hiring of a, a person from outside the community called Martha R., who runs the Homeless Services Network, we got, we got really serious about bringing in bigger federal dollars. So now the, a community that used to receive about $5 million in federal aid is now we're up to about $20 million a year in federal aid for combating homelessness. This idea of a comprehensive day services center is, is really just one more step along a, a continuum process of ending homelessness in the community. We, we used to focus on how can we serve people, and serving homeless adults really meant warehousing them in shelters. But now the, the leading agency in this community that's actually helping to end homelessness is a shelter itself, the Coalition for the Homeless. And they're my neighbor across the street and one of our best partners. And they are doing a remarkable job helping to house about 1,400 people last year. And so we're just scratching the surface in our effort to evolve from being just a service-based organization to now being focused on outcomes to help get people out of homelessness or what I, as I like to say, get them off this carousel of chaos because it's a horrible, horrible place for anybody to be. You showed me the three thermometers you had down on the whiteboard on the ground floor there. Just explain a little bit about what's going on in terms of your goals, getting people into housing, and who you are trying to help out there. So as a faith-based agency, you know, we, we could choose as our goal to be um, focused on evangelism, but that's not what we do. We've, we, for 49 years, focused on service, the idea of how many people could we serve and just doing God's work here um, for, for very good purposes in the community. What our board of directors has decided to do was to evolve into a slightly more contemporary standard, which is being outcomes focused. And in our case, it's preventing people from becoming homeless in the first place by keeping them in their apartments or getting them off the streets and into housing um, using whatever resources we can to either help them um, use their own revenue to help them find an apartment to actually putting somebody who's incredibly disabled into an apartment using government-funded uh, support for the rest of their lives because it's cheaper for us to put them in a, a one-bedroom efficiency than it is to have them on the streets and using the emergency room or being in the jail. Um, and that's a study that's been done all over the United States. We found that in Orlando, to have one chronically homeless person on the streets, it costs the community $31,065 on average 
just in costs associated with the ER and the jail, just those two things. And there's a lot of other associated costs. We can put somebody in an apartment with wraparound services for a third of that, but we only do that for people who are severely chronically ill, and that could be a physical or mental illness. And we are really focused on getting those people off the streets, those people who've been on the streets sometimes for decades. So it's, it's but it's really tough work. Did you see a lot of newly homeless over the last 18 months because of the pandemic and the financial downturn we've seen? So to, short answer to your question is we've seen a lot of people who are homeless new to us because we've opened up the campus and are um, welcoming people in a slightly different way. But I don't believe those people are new to homelessness, no. Um, I think the the increase in homelessness, if it comes, is going to be a product of the evictions working their way through the court system. If we see an increase from what is normally about a 3% eviction rate in Orange County, if that increases even 1%, you're talking about another 10,000 people in the community. It's a big deal. So um, we are hopeful that that won't happen, um, but we are holding our breath a little bit too. Just remind me of the numbers. So you had a, a number of families and, and individuals you're, you're trying to get permanently housed. Uh, just what is that goal? So our goal for homeless prevention this year is, is to prevent 120 families from becoming homeless and to move 69 families from the streets into housing. That's This is our first year having those types of outcome goals. Our five-year goal is that those numbers, you could add a zero to them. So that we hope to have about five or 600 people a year or families a year that we're moving from the street and into housing. And in doing so, we're not the only agency doing that. We have multiple other partners, including the coalition and the Salvation Army that are, are doing that exact same work. And so we are collaborating and partnering together at a level that this community has never seen before, but has been the effort of a lot of agencies for many, many years. And so there's a lot of people have been pushing on this type of thing for, for a decade now. And they're doing a really great job. But it's all starting to come together just in the last year or so. And I think you're going to see a lot more success with us moving towards functional zero and homelessness as a community within the next 10 to 15 years. So those 120 families or so, I mean, what's what does that represent as a proportion of the need, do you think? It's a small percentage. Um, nobody really knows how many adults will experience homelessness in Orlando in a given year. The number is probably somewhere between about 9,000 individuals to maybe 30,000 individuals in the three-county you know, area. It's hard to track because it's not like you can go out and just count people every single day, and we don't really know. We know that in 2019, about 6,900 children in Orange County Public Schools experienced homelessness for at least a day. What we do know is that most people who experience homelessness will experience it briefly for about eight days or less. That's about 75% of the people who experience homelessness. It's the smaller number of people, about 25% or less, that will experience homelessness for six months or more. And that's what we consider the chronically homeless, people who are on the streets for a long time and suffer from an illness of some kind. That's the harder group to deal with. Um, the country as a whole has been successful in almost effectively ending veterans' homelessness, and there's been a lot of resources towards that. We've been really successful in keeping people in their housing. There's a lot of rental assistance money out there, and we're actually getting better at using that rental assistance money. But the, the real challenge are those chronically homeless adults who are struggling with addiction issues or severe mental illness. That's the, the population that we're most concerned about. And as a, as a point of uh, reference, 
about 5% of Americans struggle with an SMI, a severe mental illness. But it's estimated that at least 60% of adults experiencing homelessness struggle with a severe mental illness. And so mental illness is not the only reason that people might experience homelessness, but it is a huge contributing factor. And so is addictive issues, you know, uh, substance abuse issues. And, and one doesn't necessarily lead to the other. Sometimes, you know, they happen in different orders. But we're trying to address both the um, the, the source of the problem um, as well as the end of the problem, you know, trying to get, get people out of homelessness permanently as best we can. So what, what's your level of concern about evictions spiking? The moratoriums have sort of gradually been peeled away. Um, are you seeing a... Are you seeing more people kind of come through looking for services because of that? Are you worried about a tidal wave of evictions in the near future? Yeah, we're worried about it, but I think that the community has come together here in Central Florida really well. Um, I think nationally there's been a lot of really positive work done. Um, I think we've created somewhat of a soft landing uh, for, for some people with a lot of the assistance that's out there. I think there's no question that you're going to see an increase in the number of evictions compared to the the norm locally. I think, you know, in in this area, we might see normally 25,000 evictions a year. It's about 3% of the homes uh, or uh, apartments in a year. You know, that number is almost assuredly going to go up in the next 12 months. Whether it goes up to 30,000 or it goes up to 100,000 is the real question. And I think um, we're doing everything we know how to do in order to keep that from becoming a catastrophe. But we're going to rely on people to just do what they always do and just find a way to make it work, you know, uh, using their families and other support systems. Fortunately, there's lots of jobs out there for people right now, and um, there's a lot of opportunity for people to to work. We just want to make sure they're taking advantage of those opportunities and getting back to work um, so that they can pay that rent. Right. But those opportunities, I mean, there are other factors that can sometimes make it hard to actually pay the rent, right? Because for one thing, house prices, if you want to buy a home, are incredibly high right now price of rent is pretty high as well and there's transportation I mean, that's a big issue and you sort of pointed that out on our tour well the organization that is helping place people in jobs they actually go out of the way to, to try and get them to those jobs but that can be a, a real barrier to cross can't it i think public transportation is probably the one distinguishing issue that makes central florida stand out more than any other we're still the largest community in the country without a dedicated source of funding for public transportation. And pre-pandemic, Mayor Demings was working towards a solution on that. Um, and I, I think he'll probably come back to that at some point. But you, you can't argue with the fact that it's all tied together. You know, if, if you can't get from your job to your apartment um, without a four-hour commute on a bus, then, yeah, housing is unaffordable, you know, in whatever area you're in. But even without the transportation issue, Orlando is um, either the worst or second to worst affordable housing market, depending on which study you look at. And, and we're being compared to Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. And then you look at the Greater Orlando Apartment Association, and they, they kind of tier out um, the occupancy rates. And the, and the bottom tier of apartments in terms of um, its value or, or the, the rent is it like a 98% occupancy rate? That's just completely unheard of. I mean, they've never had anything in their recorded history of something with the occupancy rates at that high, which means that there's just no apartments available. You can't rent an apartment in Orlando for under $1,500 a month. It's just not possible. And we are struggling, even with our programs, that will help place people at $1,100 a month. The ones that we find for them, we have to twist some arms to do it. We have, and we, we're putting people in some less than desirable areas and some less than desirable quality places in order just to get them off the streets. 
they're, they're safe overall and they meet our criteria. But if you were just looking for a one bedroom apartment in this community, if you don't have $1,500 a month to spend on it, then you are not going to find anything right now. It's just not possible in this community. And back to the jobs issue, I mean, you're right. There are a lot of jobs available right now. I know certain industries are, are really hurting for, for staff, but there, there's also the issue of wages, right? I mean, if you're, if you're looking to pay $1,500 a month, that's just for rent, leaving aside everything else that you've got to pay for just to keep food on the table and keep yourself healthy. I mean, that's a lot. It is a lot. I mean, if you are paying for $1,500 a month in an apartment and you're trying to keep your overall uh, rent expense to 30% or less of your income, that's a $60,000 a year household income. Mm-hmm. So that means you have to have at least two uh, income earners at $15 an hour wages in the household at all times. The median income in Orlando is still the lowest amongst the top 100 cities in the United States. And our median income for individuals is right around $31,000. We also have three of the the lowest median income cities in the state of Florida, and that's just a reality that we always struggle with. It's a product of a lot of different things. You have um, not only do you have the second highest service-based economy in the country behind Las Vegas, but I think more importantly, you have the lowest percentage of manufacturing jobs of any major city in the country with only 4% of our jobs being in manufacturing. Mm-hmm. So it gets it's hard to diversify an economy like that. And we're, it's not anybody's fault. It, it's, I mean, it's just a sort of a nature that even the geography of this community is important. We're one of the largest cities in the country, not on a navigable body of water. And so no port was ever developed here, and thus no manufacturing sector was ever developed. And so these things are unfortunate, but they're the realities that we have to deal with. And we um, can't ignore them. We have to be open and honest about the fact that these are challenges within the community and be willing to stand up on a world stage and say, hey, we've got some problems. But, you know, not be afraid to to tell people, watch us as we fix them. And I think sometimes our problem as a community is we're very um, self-conscious, you know, because we are, you know, the happiest place on earth. And this is a happy place. I like being here. But it's okay um, to be transparent and to be... um, real authentic about discussing your problems as a community. And I think that's something that if we're going to grow and develop and mature as a community, we have to be a little more honest about the challenges that we face. Well, Eric Gray, thanks for your time. I appreciate it. No, I appreciate you coming out and spending time in the hot, sweaty campus and seeing all the work we do. So thank you for visiting. Still to come, a closer look at the struggle for some families to put a roof over their heads. We're back in a minute. This is Intersection, I'm Matthew Petty. Habitat for Humanity of Greater Orlando and Osceola County builds up to 30 homes a year for people who make at or less than 80% of the area's median income. Thousands of people apply and around 2-3% to are approved for the Habitat program. Habitat President and CEO Catherine Steck-McManus says building affordable homes is just one part of an increasingly complex puzzle of keeping people housed in central Florida. Catherine, thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me. Obviously... The problems that Orlando has in the greater Orlando area with affordable housing are not new. It's been written about, it's been reported on for a long time. I wanted to talk, though, about what we've been seeing over the last, I guess, 12 to 18 months. And talk to me a little bit, if you could, about the spike in house prices we've seen this year particularly. Uh, How is that affecting affordability um, as far as what you're seeing? extreme rise in housing costs here in Central Florida and actually in the state, we have some of the highest increases in the cost of housing across the country over the past 12 months. The problem is right now, the average home in Central Florida 
is costing around $327,000. That is eliminating more than 50% of our community being able to afford a home uh, at that price. So we had an affordable housing shortage pre-COVID really sort of started stemming from the Great Recession in 2007-2008. And now, because of COVID and because of the extreme housing prices and because we have a lot of inequity in our wage in comparison to housing costs, we have a perfect storm of hardworking citizens here in our region absolutely shut out of being able to find an affordable home or even an affordable apartment. Currently, you would need to work, if you're making minimum wage, 115 hours per week to even afford an average two-bedroom apartment. So again, what has happened is housing is just out of reach for the majority of our community. That stat you quoted just now about 115 hours a week, I mean, I think it it, it may be a sad reality that a lot of people are kind of putting in close to those hours, right? Because you do hear stories about people working two, three jobs, sometimes four maybe, just to keep their heads above water and, and stay housed. Absolutely. And because Central Florida is such a hospitality driven region, uh, many of those jobs don't make a living wage in comparison to the cost of what things cost here in Central Florida. And so, yes, they're, they're, they're cut out. And in fact, uh, you know, I like to say we have housing prices that mirror Atlanta, but we have salaries that mirror Biloxi, Mississippi. That's a problem. And we've got to have them come closer together. So it's not just that we have a shortage of housing. We also have a significant amount of our citizens not making enough to afford the housing that we have. And even though the state of Florida is going to be moving to a $15 per hour minimum wage in the next several years, right now you need to just to afford a one-bedroom apartment, you'd need to make a minimum of $20 an hour. So even though we are are really trying to do the right thing, trying to make change, it's just not enough and it's not fast enough. So we're just going to continue to see this problem become more and more layered, more and more nuanced. As the CEO of a an organization that is directly trying to make a difference in this field is it a bit demoralizing to see the you know the barrier just kind of keep incrementally getting higher and higher even as you try and sort of help raise people up yeah so as a ceo of a housing organization and, and working with amazing families that are really just trying their best to find affordable safe housing I don't want to say it's demoralizing, but the finish line just keeps being moved. Um, And everything is expensive. So for us here at Habitat for Humanity, Greater Orlando and Osceola County, this past year, as with all builders, we've seen supply chain issues, which has delayed the building of homes. We've seen significant increases in the cost of materials, both lumber, 
uh, piping, you, you name it, everything has inflated and caused. Um, so it's, it's tough. Um, however, the nice thing, the, the encouraging thing is every time I work with a family that comes to Habitat for help, it is what I need, what my team needs to persevere, to be persistent, and to do everything we possibly can to help that family. Again, here at Habitat for Humanity, we don't give away homes. Everyone who enters the Habitat program, one, has to have a housing need, two, has to have a willingness to partner because they have to take financial literacy classes. We want to prepare them to be great homeowners. Uh, so they take about seven to eight classes to prepare before they can purchase their Habitat home. And then they also buy a mortgage. I mean, we provide low interest mortgages uh, to each of our families. So they are what keep us going. Um, if, if they're going to do the work, if they're going to persevere, goodness gracious, so are we. We're going to do everything we can to support them. So you just published a position paper, and I understand it's the first of several um, talking about some of these issues and how Habitat is going to work to address some of the challenges facing the community. Uh, let me just quote a little bit from the top line of the paper. Um, Habitat is going to redouble the nonprofit's efforts, publicly pledging to work closely with others in this common cause, boosting the growing momentum of broad-based prosperity. So it's a, it's a big kind of grand goal. How are you going to do that? Uh, over time and in collaboration and with a lot of just putting our head down and saying we can't, we can't keep doing the same things over and over again. And so what this paper calls for, um, and it can be found on our website if, if your listeners would like to, to read it, it's calling for a really shift in, in mindset. Um, we have all of these disparate organizations, both for-profit and not-for-profit, and local municipalities that are doing so much to try and support what I like to call wicked problems in our community. Housing is a wicked problem, and, and wicked problems are seem unsolvable and it's it's actually a term that academics coined decades ago it's just these big hairy issues that just seem so gargantuan that they don't have a solution and so what we're calling for in this position paper and saying that we're willing to step out on that ledge and say we're doing a great job our community is trying, our state is trying, but if we don't shift the way that we're tackling these issues, if we don't start understanding that food insecurity and housing are linked together, transportation and housing are linked together, we're really missing the point. Because if you think of it as a scale, if you can't solve a housing issue, you're also not able to solve the transportation issue. Everything is really tangled together in one web. And so one, we want our community to understand the nature of wicked problems. What are the wicked problems that are, that are facing our community? Second, 
to adopt a different kind of mindset when it comes to budgeting. Three, to redefine what collaboration means. And four, for funders and for other organizations to really step back and look at new evaluation frameworks. Now, why do we have a series of papers? Because the rest of the papers are gonna go into a little more uh, depth on what each of those mindset shifts can mean with examples of how we can do that. But I am not an academic, so let me put what we're trying to put out there in a more layperson's terminology. One, we need to understand the connectivity of all of the issues. Uh, prosperity, is what all of us want, no matter what side of the aisle that you sit on. We want a vibrant, thriving community. We want all people in our community to be able to support themselves and to be kind to others, right? So prosperous is a good thing. That means they're able to afford not only the necessities, but other things that make them better humans, better citizens, better residents. So we need to understand all of those problems and how they're interconnected. Then we've got to really take a look at how are people budgeting? That's both from a funding perspective and from an expense perspective. Are there shifts and changes in ways that we can look at that? Third, collaboration. I mentioned earlier, we have thousands of organizations and companies and municipalities here in Central Florida that are working in parallel, sometimes in collaboration, but we've got to truly start being strategic in what that collaboration looks like. And again, making sure that I'll use food insecurity as an example, that Habitat and Second Harvest are formally collaborating to assure that not only does someone have an affordable home, but they also have access to quality food. So collaboration could also be how can a nonprofit and a for-profit company and a local municipality possibly come together on a project and work towards a successful objective. I wonder if some of the things we've seen, you know, some of the kind of quick fixes we've seen the county government and city governments have to take in Osceola and Orange County specifically when it comes to pandemic relief, maybe some of those things could be rolled out on a more long-term basis. And I'm thinking about, um, you know, rental assistance, um, assistance for people just sort of making those basic necessities. Like, does it strike you that that could be something that would just be an immediate boost for people and help them kind of stay above that, you know, keep, keep the floor under their feet, the roof over their head? Absolutely. I would hope to see a lot of these programs extend themselves over time. One of the hurdles, though, that even Orange County, City of Orlando, Osceola County are facing, they have the pot of money, but so many of the residents that could benefit from that money can't access it. Not because the county or the municipality is doing something wrong, but so many low-income individuals don't have access to a computer or they are working 115 hours a week just to be able to support themselves and there is no time to access that resource. And, and the framework of all of the hurdles 
that the resident or the renter would need to jump through to get to that pot of money can seem so overwhelming that they just don't do it. So it gets us in this place sort of of we've got the supports to help so many people in our community, but do they have the resources to access that support? And so one of the learning things that has happened, uh, and, and I think both uh, both the city and the county have done such a great job of this, they realized that and said, okay, how can we mitigate some of this? How can we do a better job? So in instance, we're going to be here at Habitat uh, supporting uh, a opportunity for people to come here to our office and work directly one-on-one with agency representatives who can help walk them through what it takes to access uh, that type of funding. So it gets back to, we've got to make things easier. Is there anything else you'd like to add about affordable housing and, and Habitat's role in that going forward? I'd like to encourage people to read the paper, to reach out, not just to Habitat for Humanity, but to any organization, learn more, read more, and then stand up and see how they can make a difference. Certainly, if more people in our community understand how this impacts them, that it's not just, oh, this isn't my problem, it's their problem. We're going to be able to more quickly come up with solutions to how we can do this. Um, There is not an easy solution. It is going to take time. But if we work collaboratively, our community is resilient and we have been through many, many large issues. And this one is one that I feel confident we're going to be able to tackle in the long run. Catherine Stick McManus is the president and CEO of Habitat for Humanity, Greater Orlando and Osceola County. Thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Support for Intersection comes from Advent Health and from our listeners. Editorial guidance from Latoya Dennis. Subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also find archived episodes over on our website, wmfe.org slash intersection. I'm Matthew Petty. Thanks for listening.